Hello, and welcome to episode 137 of Pop Culturally Deprived, where each week we watch a movie I've never seen before, which is most of them, and talk about the good, the bad, and the vamped out. This week we're going to be talking about The Lost Boys on your Death by Stereo podcast. Mandy Kay, and you can find me on Twitter at Mandy Kay if you want to talk about vampire movies or any other movies that you think I should have seen. And I'm Matthew Vose. I'm on Twitter at Matthew Vose if you want to talk about any film at any time of anything, particularly vampire films at the moment, because vampires, woo! (laughs) (laughs) This week we are joined by our friend Kate, who has been asking us to cover The Lost Boys since February 2017. So we are delighted to finally have you on the show to talk about it. Yay, I'm so happy to be on talking about this. I know I have pestered you for quite a long time about it, so I apologise for that, but I do think it's an essential film, obviously. Okay. And and I could see it's an essential film, because I did go back on Twitter to see, you know, at at what point was it mentioned? Because we've definitely discussed this. I I was really surprised when you said how long ago it was. (laughs) A bit embarrassed, actually. Well... So, so there were tweets before that with you talking about The Lost Boys. It's clearly a film that's had an impact on you because I can see you talking to other people with like, hey, I made Lost Boys reference. Did you catch it? <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> why, why The Lost Boys? Why is this such a, a big film for you? So I had obviously, like you've realised, I have quite an attachment to the film. And I don't know how much of that is down to the time in my life I saw it mm-hmm. first. I was 15 years old when it came out. Okay. So I was absolutely target audience. Right. <laughs> Um, I'm aware it's messy in a lot of ways. It's very camp. It's overblown. It's full of plot holes. But it is a 1980s time capsule, I think. Um, And also, as far as I know, it's one of the first, certainly, vampire films that really changed what was going on with with vampire films. The first one that was a young vampire set. Mm -hmm. Took it out of a rut that maybe vampires were in at the time. And I think looking back now, it's probably quite hard for people that weren't aware of that to realise that vampires weren't always a young adult, a YA fiction kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was quite unusual at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really made sense for me, for Mandy to see it, whether or not she liked it, I don't know. But (laughs) it's very much related to Buffy in my mind, a Mm -hmm. precursor, an ancestor to Buffy or maybe some sort of outlandish uncle to Buffy, I'm not sure. Um, But somewhere in Buffy's family tree, I think, sits the Lost Boys. So, well, I'm sure we'll get into that connection as well. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a giant grin on Mandy's face now. Like, oh, we can talk Buffy. We're allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to stretch to find that Buffy connected. No, 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 you do not. No, not at all. <laughs> so, Mandy, how come you've not seen this? Well, we all know that I just didn't watch movies that came out in the 80s because ugh, the 80s, right? <laughs> and... I didn't know I liked vampires before Buffy, really. So Buffy was my introduction to vampires, and everything that I've liked has come since then. And like Kate said, this was a precursor to that. So it just, it wasn't on my radar. I was, 80s, vampires. I just, at the time, it wasn't going to happen. Right. So if you have not seen this movie, the briefest synopsis possible was given to us by IMDb. After moving to a new town, two brothers discover that the area is a haven for vampires. Which, if that's all you know about the movie, you are in for a surprise when you watch it. (laughs) As I was. We will talk about that shortly. Did you know any more? No. Okay. (laughs) I thought this was a serious vampire movie, okay? (gasps) Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) nobody prepared me for this that's all i have to say it is a serious vampire but what are you saying (laughs) the lost boys is a 1987 horror comedy directed by joel schumacher starring Corey Haim, Kiefer sutherland and jason patrick it was written by the comic book style alliterative team of janice fisher jeffrey bohm and james jeremias the film performed well at the box office, earning $32.2 million against an $8.5 million budget. Critics enjoyed the film, but felt there was more style than substance. The Lost Boys is credited as one of the films responsible for modernizing the vampire story in the 80s and leading directly to stories such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer a few years later. 
The Lost Boys has had two sequels, The Tribe and The Thirst, although I've been advised those are not good sequels. And a TV adaptation is being planned by The CW and Rob Thomas. Rob Thomas of iZombie, not like Matchbox 20. Well, I assumed if it was The CW, it was probably Veronica Mars, Rob Thomas. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Um, Kate, how were you able to watch this one? Um, I bought the DVD specially for this. Oh, you didn't already own it? I didn't, no. I, I, would, I would have had this on VHS at some point. <laughs> oh, right, okay. And I honestly can't remember the last time I watched it. I don't think I've seen it for at least 20, possibly 25 years. Nice. Oh, wow. It really shocked me when I realized. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't think I've seen it in all that time. So when I said time capsule, <laughs> it really is. It was like unearthing something yeah. from my childhood, really, watching it again. Well, I'm glad we gave you the excuse to mm-hmm. actually put it in your collection. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, what about you? Is it available in the UK anywhere? Uh, not streaming. I did the same. I had to buy the DVD of this. And I'm in exactly the same camp. I can remember it being on, like, Channel 4 when I was a teen. So I think that's when I must have seen it. But I, I feel like it is always on. It just hasn't been on for the months we've been planning this. So mm. picked up a DVD. Okay. In in one of my sacks of vampire DVDs that we'll do something with at the end of the year. Keep your ears right. out if you want to win some vampire <laughs> DVDs. Um, how about in the US? Well, it is actually rentable everywhere here. It it has been on Hulu. Um, and if you have the HBO add-on, you can get it on Hulu. Um, okay. You can rent it on Amazon. It's it's everywhere. So I did not have to buy a DVD. Nice. Have you cancelled HBO since Game of Thrones is finished? Is that the thing? I finally did. It took a couple of months when I was finally like, oh, yeah, why am I getting charged $16 a month? Oh. So, yeah. Nice. Okay. You mentioned director Joel Schumacher, Keith Sutherland, and the two Corys. So um, what's your experience of them? We have actually talked about all three of them on the show before, which I thought was interesting. Um, usually we don't have a movie where we've talked about everybody mm. already. Um, so we, with Joel Schumacher, he directed Flatliners, um, which we did a while ago. Um, Kelly and I did two of his movies on Southern Fried Pop Culture, The Client and A Time to Kill. Uh, so I've seen a few things that he's done. Okay. Um, I, I think he's most famous probably for the Batman movies, but I haven't seen his Batman movies, <laughs> which I think is probably okay. Uh, you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about, and I said there was a DC channel and there were two DC yes. films I've not seen on it. Oh, was it these? Batman and Robin is one of them. Batman and Robin uh, is one of them. Okay. Yeah. Everyone says it's yeah. the worst. Uh, so why would I watch it? You know. Right. Because it's a Batman right. film. I feel I should, but mm, mm, dilemma. Um, Keith Sutherland. Not really a dilemma. It's not at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Kiefer, Th- Kiefer Sutherland. Um, also, Flatliners and A Time to Kill. Um, but also Stand By Me, which we've done on the show. Um, and then A Few Good Men and 24, although I've never actually seen 24. I think everybody just is aware that this big movie star decided to do a TV series, right? Yep. And everybody who grew up in the 80s and 90s knows who the two Corys are. Um, but I didn't actually watch anything that they were in. Apparently, this is the first thing they did together that kind of mm. coined them as the two Corys. Um, and I looked at the list and... I yeah no I haven't seen them. I was actually surprised by that. Okay, I wa- I watched um, Goonies in the summer, and it's really mm-hmm. strange because you can kind of see him growing up over three or four films. Yeah, but only mm-hmm. one of the Corys was in Goonies. Yeah. So Corey felt um, so, which I have seen. It's been a very very long time, mm-hmm. but um, none of the movies that had the two Corys like um, there was some movie about driving license oh, license to, to drive. Yeah. Yeah, um, haven't seen that. There's, I don't know. There's just a bunch of them, and that sounds you know, like a great film. <laughs> I saw a clip of it because I was watching some YouTube videos about the Lost Boys, and mm. they all, of course, talked about the two Corys, and they showed a couple clips from their movies, and I was like, that might be something worth putting on the list when we're in a lull sometimes. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, okay, the Lost Boys. Did you enjoy the Lost Boys? Okay, I didn't love it, but it wasn't terrible. But why did nobody tell me this was camp? (laughs) Seriously, I had no idea this was supposed to be camp. And I was expecting a serious vampire movie. Like, and when I say serious, I don't mean, I guess I mean kind of like Dracula. 
You know, a movie that takes itself very seriously and is telling a story. Like, we talked about Blade yesterday. And Blade is a movie that takes itself seriously in a world about vampires. And I was expecting that same kind of setting. That is not what you get with this movie. This is Buffy-level camp. I just didn't know it. Interesting. Mm. Do you think you would have enjoyed it more if you had known beforehand I think that it was so. that kind of film? I think I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, because now, you know, reading things about it and, and you know, watching clips and stuff, I do find it, my memory of the event is more enjoyable than my experience of the event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why. It's because now I understand, oh, I'm supposed to laugh at this. Yeah. And it, at first, I was just confused. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And I think, you know, even things like the, you know, the posters, the famous image Mm-hmm. of them all standing together and Jason Patrick in his cool sunglasses mm-hmm. and all of that. It it looks like it's trying to sell itself as, yeah, this, uh, yes, it's a teenage thing, but it's a serious teenage thing. Right. I yeah. don't think the marketing um, over the years has, has really explained what it's like at all. Mm-hmm. And I didn't watch the trailer, so I don't know what tone the trailer sets. Mm, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I'm sure it does have some of the clips of the two Corys messing about and that sort of thing. So you maybe would get a better idea from that. But yeah. Any clips of Corey Feldman would have told me instantly that this was not trying to set itself seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So You see, I don't think of it as camp. I think it, it appears camp to a modern eye. I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's intentional. Certainly the trailer does want you to think it's a horror. Because, um, and even the stuff with Corey Feldman is is all the stuff of, there are vampires, you need to watch out, kid, in the comic shop, the early stuff. Um, and then it's explosions mm-hmm. of blood and so on. But I, I, I think it is trying to take itself somewhat seriously, but not necessarily as a vampire film. I think it's the vampire stuff that pushes it to camp, because the rest of it is all kind of... The warriors, gangs, moving to a new area, getting in with the wrong kids, uncovering your latent homosexuality, which we can get into later if we want to. <laughs> um, that that kind of side of it. I mean, okay, so I think it did have some serious messages. Like it was trying to, it, it was saying things about the state of the American family mm-hmm. at the time, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in a time where the country was worried that the normal family, normal, quote unquote, inverted commas, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> family was falling away. It was no longer a mom and dad and 2.5 kids, right? It, in this movie, we have the recently divorced mom who's moving in with her dad with her two boys. We have the vampire family, right? And these mm-hmm. are not your traditional family. And so there is absolutely some sort of message there. But I think, I'm pretty sure I read something this morning where Joel Schumacher described it as camp. Okay. So I think there was some intentionality right. there in a way to maybe make some of these more serious statements in a way that's not preachy. Mm-hmm. Maybe not preachy is probably not the right word because it's not like a teaching you lesson more than it is just showing, hey, this can be a thing as well. I don't know. I, I don't think it it's, I don't think it takes any of the lessons to anything like a conclusion. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. The other thing when you mentioned there about the American family and, and sort of the whole conservative family values, things that were going on at the time, um, which were possibly happening here as well. The other thing that really sticks in my mind from that year as a teenager was that was when the AIDS crisis really mm-hmm. became um, publicized is probably the best way to say it across the whole of society. Um, I think before that it was seen of something that was happening to others um, and in other places. Mm. But I mean, certainly 1987 in the UK was the year the government launched a massive AIDS don't die of ignorance campaign with huge gravestones being carved on your TV screens Mm. and and all of that. And um, yeah, I think that was another element that I I wondered had fed into it or not. And um, yeah, the, what, what are the dangers of engaging in certain types of relationships with certain types of people? Things that in the past might have just been unacceptable to society. Now we're saying they're life-threatening, so you definitely shouldn't go there. Yeah, that's possibly getting a bit too serious to... Um, no, no, because and it's, it is a, an absolutely bang-on point, because there is there is a thing of him being tempted by them, being sort of quasi-tricked into sharing blood, which, mm-hmm. yes, was a you know message at the time. But at the same time... 
he is enjoying it and liking being there. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting things, as well as the smaller boy, Corey, whose name I can't remember. Matt? Sam. Sam, Sam. thank you. Um, yeah. Him finding, you know, again, a sort of family of choice, the guys at the comic shop who are his people and he wants to spend mm-hmm. time with. But he likes going and sleeping with his mum because he gets scared. They're really playing up his, he's a small boy kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we we're, we're mentioning all the men in the story, Mike. Of which there are of many. Which there are many. There are many. <laughs> Michael. I think there was a thing of like Michael gets said like 130 times. The yeah. word Mike. in a 97 minute movie. Yes. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> which I have to say, watching it with my dog was hilarious. Um, I watched it while my son Michael was at school, <laughs> and we play lots of hide and seek games with the dog, where in which we go. Where's Michael? Oh, no. Where's Michael? Oh, no. <laughs> On screen, it was Michael. Michael. The dog was, uh, yeah, looking around the room. Confused. Bless him. Oh, <laughs> that's that's awesome. lovely. But but I think the <laughs> Diane West character is really interesting, and I think Star is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a hint that actually Star was supposed to be the one being turned, but that it was Michael that they decided to want to be a vampire. Because I couldn't couldn't tell whether she was actually a vampire or not, or whether she needed to feed. She was a half vampire, wasn't mm. she? This bit of vampire lore that was in this film about the half vampire who has drunk the blood but not actually killed anyone themselves. And I wasn't sure that made sense, really, that um, they were obviously trying to get Michael to be part of the group. They were going to turn him. And then later in the film, she says that David wanted Michael to be her first kill. Mm. Well, I think... I don't, I don't know that the movie adequately explained this, but I think I can headcanon it a little bit mm-hmm. because the way the way Michael was going after Star and the way David was very possessive of Star made sense that he would want Michael out of jealousy to be out of the picture, right? And to use Michael as Star's first kill. Um, but they moved very, very quickly from that idea of like Star being property and, you know, David and Michael, she's standing between them and she has to determine, well, who's she going to go with? Mm-hmm. And she gets on David's bike. And almost instantly they take Michael under their wing. Like he's on the bike and he doesn't go off the cliff. And so, oh my God, come with us, be one of us, right? Mm-hmm. Like instantly it was like a switch had just been flipped and it came out of left field. But I can kind of headcanon it as, well, he survived the trick, so maybe it's okay for him to be one of them, maybe? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. I wondered as well with the whole um, which bike is Star going to get on quandary. Were we supposed to think that David was talking to her in her mind then when they were looking at each other? Because mm. later after after Michael's drunk the blood, that's when he can start to hear their voices in his head, I think. Oh, I didn't pick up mm. on that. That they can hear him hear yeah, David and the rest of them saying his name. Mm-hmm. Just that, you know, there was such a long pause where Star was sta- staring at David there after he'd said her name. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe we were supposed to think he was threatening her yeah. or telling her a plan. Or mm. I read it more as he just had such control over her mm-hmm. that her fear is what won out and that's why she went to him. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think that. That it absolutely could have sense. been because I, I didn't pick up on the the tones of um, him hearing them in his mind. But I think it was also really chaotic right after he drank the blood and there was so much going on. I think I felt more like they were actually speaking, but it's possible they weren't. And I just missed it. Mm-hmm. Whispering from the fog. Yeah. Yeah. Under the bridge. Yeah, that that was very nice. I think we're definitely going to come to that. Um, mm-hmm. So Star's interesting. I, I like the mum as a... She's completely grounded and, you know, obviously doing what she thinks is best for the kids and trying to go out and get a job. But also she has her own personality and her own life. But she is just ready to drop the date and turn around and go and help them mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. believe them when they say stuff. I mean, you know, when it's fantastical, she doesn't quite. But she is there for them. And when he's scared, she's like, yeah, absolutely. You can come and sleep with me. It, it is a really nice maternal figure. Whereas mm-hmm. so often, particularly in the 80s, it's all about the mum's story and she doesn't really get involved in the kids' stories. Yeah, she was a very different mother character mm. to, I think, to what we were used to then because I remember actually being quite irritated by her character okay. when I was first watching it. I, I'm not sure why particularly, but I think she just 
she did come across as a bit of a wet blanket some of the time. Watching it now, it really struck me thinking, oh, she's a really good mum. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not perfect, but none of us are. And obviously, I have a different perspective on that now than I did when I was 15. Right. Um, And particularly that moment when she wants Michael to talk to her. And I think at the time, I was so used to seeing mother figures who would be demanding, come and sit down, I need to speak to you, what have you been up to? Mm. But that quiet sitting and saying, are we friends? Let's do what friends do. Let's talk. Mm -hmm. And just being there, like Matthew said. Um, yeah, quite a different a different take on that figure, definitely. Un- really unusual for that mm. time, I think. Well, it, I honestly, I think it's unusual for now, too, because mm. I, I had a book blog a little while ago, and I mostly reviewed YA fiction, right? And one of the things that came up almost every single time was either the parents weren't present at all, or if they were, they made the situation worse. Right. Because <laughs> they thought they knew what was best, and the kids were just kids who couldn't handle themselves right and this movie did not do that at all like she was there she was helpful she was the kind of mom that sam would go to when he had a problem like his one of his first instincts was to go see if his mom could help and you know she didn't believe him of course because he's talking about vampires in the middle Mm -hmm. of a video store Mm -hmm. but he tried and you just don't see that happen in fiction today particularly teenage fiction Mm -hmm. today so I really, yeah. really enjoyed that aspect. And I wish that was one of the legacies that this movie had left, <laughs> was we can have good parents in teenage films. Mm. It is possible to do it and to do it well. Yeah. So many stories about children and young people rely on the parents being absent, though, don't they? Whether that's that their stories about orphans or, mm-hmm. you know, stories where the parents are conveniently, you know, on holiday or... Um, and like every Disney think, movie thinking ever. Of the, yeah. And thinking of the Peter Pan link with this, that originally, you know, the concept mm-hmm. of this was going to be that it was somehow based on Peter Pan. And obviously it, it went quite far away from that. Yeah. But that relied on all of the children being parentless to, to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. So interesting that they kept a strong parent figure in there, actually. And even with the granddad as well. So she has a parent figure who, as it turns out, knows what's going on and <laughs> is able to take down the main vampire in the end. Yeah, of course it he did. brings a whole new meaning to his line early on, that's as close as I like to get to town. Mm. At first, yeah. I was like, he's just weird. Like, he gets in the car, cranks it, and then they don't go anywhere, right? But then at the end, when you realize he knows what's going on in this town, it made sense. Mm. It's, it was fun. I wish they had changed the title of the film when they changed the premise. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because originally, the original director, um, Richard Donner, Mm -hmm. I think, who left the project to go do Lethal Weapon, his vision, I think David's character was actually named Peter, and his gang was actually all small boys, like young children, not teenagers, um, to parody the idea of the Lost Boys. And when Joel Schumacher took over, he wanted it to be less wholesome and family-friendly and to be this dark, gritty vampire movie. Mm. Um, So he aged everybody up. And so I don't understand why they didn't change the name. Because The Lost Boys in this context doesn't really make sense to me. So uh, in your head, uh, I I understand what you're saying about the title not quite fitting now, but since it is there, do you think The Lost Boys are the vampires? Or are The Lost Boys Michael and Sam? I think the movie wants us to think it's the vampires since yeah, they focused yeah. so heavily on the missing children posters. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's a connection that just doesn't work. Yeah. For I me. agree. I just had read that in a couple of places. People saying, oh, well, perhaps the Emersons are the Lost Boys. And, you know, because they've had to move and there's been this divorce. Mm-hmm. I think what the discussion, you know, the idea about the mother figure negates yeah. that really. I don't think they are lost. Um, they're in the middle of a whole coming of age thing going on, but they're not lost i don't think yeah i don't think they were lost if they were lost they wouldn't have felt comfortable going to their mom for help yeah you know or asking their grandpa for help you know things like that they they would have felt the need to do this on their own and that never happened like even sam calling the frog brothers for help in a if he were lost he wouldn't have done that he would have tried to Mm -hmm. do it himself yeah I I think it's a hard sell because it's so obvious to call the vampires the Lost Boys, but there is something in it that there is um, a, a bit of a neat parallel between the fight of the Lost Boys against Hook 
um, having this sort of fantastical creature in Tinkerbell who helped them, and the way the dog, whose name began with a K? I thought it was Nanook. Nanook, Nanook is it ends dog, with a K. Yeah. There we go. Um, yes. Helping them, and the way they set up to go and, or, or to have this big fight, it has that sort of feel to it. Let's go on an, an adventure. But it does feel uh, like, Interesting, because yeah. I'm just, I'm reminded the dog's name in Peter Pan was Nana. Okay. So oh, to have this one be Nanook, it's clearly inspired. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I would love to know what the star is actually Tinkerbell, mm. whether that's where that character evolved from. It doesn't sort of fit in terms of the role now, but you do wonder whether if when Joel Schumacher took over the right, rather than a Wendy elements yeah. and thought, how can we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the original version, Star's character was a boy. It, Joel Schumacher turned it into Star's character. Oh, right, because you needed a hot girl in there. Of sexy, sexiness. You had to have, it's a vampire movie, you have to have a sex scene. Yeah, of course you do. And it's a vampire nice. movie with a lot of homoeroticism in it, so of course we have to have a heterosexual sex scene in it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Just to be clear on the message we're giving, that we're not for a second suggesting that David and Michael are attracted to each other. Right. Um, that's not why we put half-naked posters of Rob Lowe on the wall either, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Okay. So we mentioned the bridge earlier, and it's it's one of the sort of cult scenes from this. Everyone hanging up down as the train goes overhead and dropping into mist, and we do not know what happens in the mist. An unknown mm-hmm. thing. Uh, Kate, I assume that's a, a scene that stayed with you? Well, strangely enough, it sort of did, but for all the wrong reasons. Okay. I, um, I had a... <laughs> yeah, this probably isn't going to need to go in. I, I had a huge phobia of trains when I was a little girl. Okay. Huge phobia. So and anything that had fast trains and things, I just, uh, yeah, I wasn't a fan of oh. and I tended to close my eyes. So I'm not I'm not sure even at 15 I coped well with that scene, you know, oh. which is ridiculous considering all the other things mm. going on in that film. But no, to get back to what you were actually asking there, yes, obviously it's an iconic scene, mm. isn't it? And I think... <laughs> I quite like the fact it isn't clear what happened because obviously the whole scene after he drinks the blood is so trippy. You know, I don't think we've mm. talked yet about the, you know, the drug references in this, which are, are clearly there. Mm. And whether the dropping into the mist is just about dropping into unconsciousness or, you know, how literally are we supposed to take what happened? I mean, obviously he was on the bridge and he had to go somewhere. But the fact we see him falling onto his bed at the end of that. Yeah, pretty exhausted. Um, yeah, yes. Yes, throwing himself back on a bed, exhausted. I did read a quote from Kiefer Sutherland Mm -hmm. in an interview, which mentioned, and it was all around that, the the chemistry that was between those two male characters, really, was particularly around when he caught Michael when they fell from the bridge. Oh, interesting. And I had to then go back to that scene, think, have I just all these years missed that? But that isn't in <laughs> no, there. I don't yeah. know if it's in another version of it, but it's it's not in the one I've seen. Um, so presumably that was in there somewhere, which whether they took that out because that was making that relationship just too obvious mm. or I don't know. What did, what did you guys think of that, that scene? Well, I think the next question was, yeah, Mandy, how did that work for you? Um, it worked really well until the end because it left me confused with what happened with it going directly mm-hmm. from him letting go to then falling on his bed, okay. you know, because it, it did give an air of hallucination to it, but clearly it wasn't. He was on the bridge. And and so I wasn't sure what the movie wanted me to get out of that scene, but it looked really cool. <laughs> <laughs> not think that probably happened quite a lot in the making of this film though that someone probably said to Joel Schumacher Joel hey look this just doesn't really make a lot of sense and that he probably dismissed that with it yeah but it's gonna look really cool <laughs> yeah don't worry about I it can do that. it's it's a campy vampire film no one's gonna expect anything serious of this in years to come mm-hmm. <laughs> let's not worry about it yeah so let's let's actually talk about the vampire mythology mm. in this world because it is unique I think to this world. There are a lot of differences between what we think of as common vampire mythology and the way Joel Schumacher portrayed it <clears throat> in this movie. Um for example, to turn into a vampire, all you have to do is drink blood. You don't have to be bitten. You just have to drink the vampire blood. Um 
and then you're not fully turned until you kill somebody, which I don't think I've ever seen that before. So it's a double drinking of blood. You get the vampire's blood and you get a human's blood. Yeah, it's yeah. a really strange thing. And particularly with the like mm-hmm. the fading in front of the mirror. So mm-hmm. it's a nice way to show us he's not completely turned. But yeah, it's a really unusual thing where we've seen other films that just that you, you're turned when you're bitten and done. Right. He doesn't even get bitten. For whatever. Right. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, he never gets bitten. He just drinks the blood. Um, and I think one of the reasons I struggle with that piece mm. of vampire lore so much is because I'm so familiar with Buffy. Mm-hmm. And it's an iconic line from Buffy. Well, first they suck your blood and then you have to drink their blood. It's this whole big sucking thing, but mostly they're just going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I always just assume it has to be a mutual exchange of blood. And this vampire movie month that we're doing has shown me that there are variations to that theme. Um, and each time they're done in such a way that is just slightly different. You know, mm-hmm. it's fascinating how how many variations on a theme you can have that still seem very much like the original, but aren't. Yeah. Because it still involves blood. Mm. It's not just like, oh, well, I'm going to inject you with something and now you're a vampire, right? It still has that core tenet that, that blood matters. I, I quite like one of the things I found in watching all the vampire films is a lot of them deal with this idea of if you kill the sire or the, the master vampire, mm-hmm. that it actually can free other vampires that they mm-hmm. have turned. And I, I didn't think that was a thing. And I wonder if it's just a it's a useful story thing to... To allow you to have one of your main characters turn to a vampire, but then give you a thing like, oh, we have to save them. So, mm-hmm. Didn't they do that in Dracula, though? Didn't staking Dracula f- cure... Mm. What's her face? Mina? Winona Ryder. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. Winona Ryder. I thought that was a thing in Dracula, because I remember being surprised by that. Mm. But now this it's come up a couple of times in the movies that we've done this month. Yeah, that that gradual turning, that definitely happens in in the Bram Stoker Dracula mm-hmm. film. I, it's a very long time since I read the book, so I don't know how mm. um, how true to that it is. But that idea of becoming, finding it more and more difficult to resist mm-hmm. the closer you're getting. And, and with that, it's the number of times Dracula is drinking from her, isn't it? Yeah, because she and doesn't cause turn immediately. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she does end up drinking his she blood. She drinks too. his blood, yeah. yeah. Does, she doesn't she doesn't kill anyone, does she? Mm-mm. No, she no. doesn't. And her friend doesn't either, who mm-hmm. ends up turning completely. So that one again is just the exchange of blood. Mm. Mm-hmm. The other noticeable difference in this one to me was, and I think you noted this on the outline, the in inviting a vampire mm. into your house. Mm. Yeah. That was different. And and I may have interpreted it differently than you guys did. So I'm curious what you saw in in this, because I read it very much as you don't need to be invited in if you're a vampire. You can go in wherever you want. But if you are invited in, then the person who owns the house or whatever then has no power over the vampire, which is why, because he was invited into their home, the holy water didn't work. The garlic mm-hmm. didn't work because he had the invitation to be there. But David didn't have an invitation. And so while he could come into the home, they could hurt him. Yeah. Mm. Matthew, you don't look like you agree with me on that. No, I I agree with you on the interpretation. I think it's there purely so they can give us the misdirect in the middle. Mm, Okay. Yeah, because otherwise, I I think that that was what I was trying to figure out and managed to confuse myself a bit about it. Why did Max insist on being invited in? Mm. Did he... Did he can he foresee that they were onto him and mm. they were going to be trying to catch him out? Because he didn't seem to think he was in actual danger, right? Does he always just do that as a precaution? Because he's you know he's older and sensible yeah. and he knows it's the best way to do it. Yeah, no, I would do that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even then, it's Michael who invites him in, so it's the granddad's house. So they're saying the grandson mm-hmm. then has the power of invite, and that then... Well, but he lives there then at that point. He does, so but he's not the owner. And he did say, you're the man of the house, which, I mean... Isn't true. He's but... not. <laughs> but then... But we know the man of the house wouldn't have invited him in, because he knows, mm. probably knows he's a vampire. He, he then... The people who don't have power over him are Sam and the Frog Brothers. 
So it's it, it, it's a little tenuous, if I'm honest. And mm. and I think the only reason it exists is for, is for that misdirect, which is quite yeah. nice. Because mm-hmm. I quite like what they do with the character of Max, of actually he's, you know, a, a nice genial kind of chap and she wants to go on dates with him. But oh no, it turns out he has a hellhound and <laughs> is a vampire leader of all the vampires. I actually, you know, I really liked it too, because my first thought was, oh, they're bringing it up this early. It can't possibly be, mm. like, it can't be true, yeah. right? Um, and then I was thinking, but it's going to be a really great twist if it is true. And then finally, at the very end, we realize it is. Yeah. And so I enjoyed very much how they did that twist. It, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious. So I'm going to use this to segue us into the Buffy conversation. Um, okay. Because you've mentioned Buffy there. And the, the thing with Max is he utterly reminded me of the mayor. In that sort yes, of very yeah, genial, yeah. very nice, but I am going to rip your throat out yes. <laughs> sort of way. But I'm fairly sure that's not the only one for either of you. So do you want to just go through the list? What did you pick up on? What did you like about it that suddenly came for you seeing it then going, carrying through to Buffy? Like, oh, this is like the Lost Boys. This is like the Lost Boys and Mandy in the opposite direction. Well, I mean, Spike was clearly directly inspired by David. Really? And it turns out that Joss has actually said that. You know, that that was in my notes. Like, huh, did Spike come from this? You know, I was like, the the bleached hair, the long coat. Like, it makes sense. Mm. But I was like, it could be a coincidence. But Joss is on record as saying, no, Spike directly came from Kiefer Sutherland and the Lost Boys. So I appreciated that one for sure. And I've I've certainly read that apparently Joss Whedon has said that the idea of vamp face mm-hmm. came from this, possibly from another film as well, but oh, certainly okay. from this film. The idea that you could have these um, young, cool, handsome guys and beautiful women, but that they then can turn to this mm-hmm. monster. Whereas previously, yes, fangs might or might not be there all the time. Mm-hmm. But this idea of the... Um, yeah, the forehead changing and the eyes and everything like that. That, as far as I could read, that that was quite a new thing. Mm-hmm. And he did take inspiration from that. And I believe one of the makeup artists was um, from the Lost Boys. Actually, worked on Buffy. Really? Okay. Oh, okay. That's somewhere. Yeah, right. I'd have to double check that, but I believe that's true. Mm. So that yeah, that was that was another direct link to me. I think there's a lot of um, what watching Sam again. I think mm. there's a, quite a lot of Buffy in sam actually the way sam is presented as um you know he's he's this fashion victim cool Mm -hmm. kid i guess probably would occupy a similar position within american high school cliques and status Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing that you know he would always have the latest fashion he's ready with a quip he's you know Mm. he's quite a cool kid but actually turned out to have a heart of gold and a huge amount of courage Mm. and so much care for his friends and his family and was willing to you know to just jump into this new world and fight to kill these creatures that were threatening um and just i think looking back to those scenes i think we see in flashback probably in buffy of her sitting on the steps sucking the lollipop yeah just before Mm. she first gets called i kind of uh, yeah i I can see a link there definitely Mm. okay i did find it interesting sam's reaction to learning about vampires in this world it was just, he sees his brother's reflection as fading. You're a dirty vampire. And then he like runs up the stairs. <laughs> you wait my mind's out. <laughs> like there's no freak out. There's no like, this vampires aren't real. It was just, this is a thing in the world and you're one of them. It was kind of awesome, but also really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it didn't make a lot of sense really. A child really in that situation would not have reacted yeah. like that, but I think for that character in this film, it worked perfectly. Yeah, him running no. upstairs in his mad dressing gown. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, Corey Haim played the part him. very well. Yeah, he did. And, and then he hides he under it when Star turns up at the window, and he's like, "She's a vampire, dressing gown over the head." <laughs> like it's a useful dressing gown, covers up big necklaces of garlic. Yeah, as well, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, everyone knows that, you know, dressing gowns and quilts and blankets are definitely mm. a way to ward off vampires. I was sure of that when I was a little girl. As long as I had my blanket tucked right up around my neck, I knew that vampires could not get me because they couldn't get to my neck. So, nice. yeah. <laughs> so I think we're starting to gush somewhat about this film. 
um, and really revel in it. I, I think the film does a lot of very cool stuff with the vampire sort of mythology. And, and like you said at the beginning, Mandy, introducing it to a, a sort of modern take on it where it had always been like horror films in the past. Whilst this is a horror, yeah, this has got comedy going on with it as well. Uh, what stood out to you as some of your favorite stuff in it? You know, it took me a little while to get on board with Carrie Feldman's character, but by the end of it, I just kind of really loved him. Okay. I'm playing Edgar Frog, I think was his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was watching a clip of an interview that, that he had given about this, and he said um, that after he did the audition or the read or whatever, Joel Schumacher asked him to butch up the character. <laughs> and then he told him to say um, – or to go watch – all of the Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris movies, you know, like Rambo and right. whatever the movies that Chuck Norris did. I don't know. <laughs> but to like take all of those characters and form them into one character and have that be Edgar. <laughs> and that's what he did. And it made a lot of sense because I was wondering why his voice sounded like that because that's not what Corey hmm. Feldman's voice sounds like. He was, oh, I'm going to talk like this, <laughs> much in the way that Blade goes Frost. Frost. You know, it was very, very obviously a put on. And um, Corey had this quote. He said, I think the fun part about the character and the comic value of it is that he doesn't think it's funny and he's not in on the joke. So he's one of those people that you just kind of have to laugh at because they really take themselves very seriously and they believe every word of what they're saying about themselves or whatever it is they believe in. And I thought that was a really good take on the character. Mm. And it made me appreciate him even more. Mm. Yeah, he's obviously thought about it, hasn't he? And done something mm-hmm. very nice with it. Yeah, yeah, I know he did. It was great. Um, I also really liked the song. I didn't realize the song that basically played throughout the whole thing was written specifically for the movie. Um, I think it's called Cry Little Sister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's been on many, many Billboard top charts. You're smiling at me, Matthew, like I should know these things. No, it, it is just one of those songs you hear. You're like, oh, okay, they're using that song again. And because it does evoke a very specific sense of like a bit of foreboding, you know, children singing in that mm-hmm. way is a little bit foreboding. Um, yes. As well as a bit modern, a bit punk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I read it's been sampled by a lot of people, right. even like really super recently stuff like Eminem's done it and Marilyn Manson has done it and it's it's an a- iconic song although I didn't actually know that before I watched this movie okay <laughs> but now I know that um and then there was a quote at the end um and I can't remember who said it but um in response to Max wanting to create a family and to bring Lucy in mm-hmm. somebody it's probably Edgar called them the blood-sucking Brady Bunch <laughs> yeah I thought that was a pretty good, like, visual of, of what they were trying to do. I liked it. Yeah. See, I laughed at that this time. When yeah. I was 15, I had no idea what that was about. <laughs> okay. It just went out, yeah. There was a few things in the film, I must admit. I, I think I got some strange ideas maybe about um, how life in America was by watching films <laughs> when I was a teenager. I, especially if you thought this movie was indicative of life in america american family yeah apparently this movie says that all american teenagers are punk with mohawks (laughs) and leather and like uh, are they not no (laughs) i don't think they were in the 80s either maybe they were in in santa clara but you know i don't know the thing that confused me the most i must admit is um the concept of a comic book store okay really when i was 15 yeah, this is probably embarrassing to admit, is it? Um, yeah, I, comics were kids' magazines, like the Beano with little cartoons of Dennis the Menace mm. and silly jokes in. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, like, obviously, they were mentioning Superman and Batman and that sort of thing, and I, I knew those characters from films and cartoons on the telly. But, um, yeah, I, I remember just being baffled. I don't know if that's why I never took to the Frog Brothers, because I just couldn't, couldn't get my head around those scenes at all. Right. It's like, what is this shop where they've got mm-hmm. these magazines, but they're about Superman? Why would you have magazines about Superman? Why are they saying all these numbers? And yeah, just an absolute gap in my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, really, really threw me. But yeah, comics over here, certainly at that time, were in the news agents and they were Ghostbusters or Thundercats or, or Beano and things. So very much cartoony, cartoony. Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm not even sure we necessarily always got the numbered issues of the superhero and things because I grew up, it was always like trade paperbacks, graphic novels, collections of them. Mm-hmm. It was never mm-hmm. single issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we had a very different industry at that, that time. <laughs> okay. Well, what about you, Matthew? What did you really like from this movie? We've not really mentioned Kiefer Sutherland. And, you know, he has basically stepped out of Stand By Me and then come into this film in some ways. A little bit evil, a little bit dark. I think the hair's not too dissimilar. But actually watching it now, there's a lot in this that reminded me of the the sort of classic portrayals of Dracula. You know, he's really intense. He doesn't say much and he sort of glides through the film just being cool. And certainly the way he brings Michael under his wing (laughs) as part of the gang, however you want to think of it is reminiscent of what Dracula does with Renfield and Harker. So the people who go and visit him in Transylvania and are selling him things and and they become his sort of familiars and Mm -hmm. he ends up kidnapping them and trying to bite Keanu Reeves. Fair. Um, But it's, it's very much that same sort of thing, but you can see that they've gone, but let's make him cool. And, you know, he rides a bike and he's awesome. And he actually is cool. I, yeah, think that's yeah. the I think there's other things in the film that you could see they probably wanted to be cool. But my feeling anyway was that character still stands up. The way he's presented mm. mm-hmm. is actually quite timeless, despite the fact he has a mullet. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it was it was quite amazing. And I didn't know, I was trying to figure out why they'd lit him the way they did in some of the scenes. You had these bright white lights mm. on him where they're in the cave and you you think, are we supposed to actually understand what that light is? Is it meant to be a shaft of moonlight coming right. down on his face? Or, um, but but he just glows. I mean, you know, the the pale skin and the pale hair and mm. and then the black clothes really make mm. him stand out. But the fact when you realise actually afterwards how little he speaks, mm. he um, he's quite magnetic, isn't yeah. he? Which is obviously the the point mm. of that character, like you say, to draw people in. Mm-hmm. But I think he does that to the audience as well. Yeah, timeless, I think, yeah. is absolutely the right word for it. Yeah, very interesting character. Speaking of mullets, mm-hmm. Alex Winter. <laughs> Alex Winter, the reason I oh, watched the film. Style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't talked about him at all, but that is a mullet that he had on his head. <laughs> With his gorgeous blonde curls as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, at that time, certainly here, um, boys used to get the back of their hair permed. Mm-hmm. They would leave the top straight right. and have it short, and they would get the back permed to have curly hair at the back. And so, yeah, he just looked like one of the football kids that Crikey. knocked around at home to me, <laughs> okay. but with a really fancy jacket on. The <laughs> 80s were a very special time for hair, and I think this film showcases <laughs> that beautifully. Oh, there we go. That is our pull quote for this episode. The <laughs> 80s were a very special time for hair. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, I have to say, I, my decision to get a perm was probably quite um quite significantly based on star right you know which is ridiculous i think in my head i thought if i get a perm i probably will look very much like jamie gertz despite the fact um you know have mousy blonde hair and it's nearly shoulder length and i live in northeast england (laughs) (laughs) pale as anything but this perm will magically transform me into a vampirish waif that can (laughs) waft about the place enticing people yeah, yeah it didn't work. We but, think you know. when we're teenage girls, absolutely. Of course, yeah, of course, definitely. But I definitely had the the embroidered shawls and the the long skirts with the bits of mirror on and nice. that kind of thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> I couldn't definitely. tell how old she and Michael were meant to be because when they first show up and they're at the shirtless saxophone concert thing. Oh yeah, we haven't even no, mentioned all oh, your sax now. Um, but we like they they both look like they're at least thirty or forty. There's something about them that they are properly, you know, trying to be adults there. But then at other times, it's implied he's not that much, or he's a bit older than Sam, but still maybe high school age. Well, the, yeah, the mum says at one point, doesn't she? This this will all have to stop when school mm. starts up. Or something. Mm-hmm. I think we're meant to think he's on his summer break from high school, aren't we? So, yeah, I would say he's probably, he looks like he might be 19, but he's probably supposed to be 17 or 18. Mm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just could not tell. And particularly that first bit, I was like, there's some shenanigans going on here with adults playing kids. I mean, they weren't. They were early 20s anyway, Mm. uh, the two of them. How old do you think we are supposed to think the vampires are, the young vampires, in terms of, you know, were they all turned relatively recently? 
Oh, and they're obviously supposed to be of an age in terms of where mm. they've stopped. But mm-hmm. I didn't. I don't feel we get any sense at all, really, of how long. Well, well, they're not as old as vampires. No, no. I, I think that's really the only clarity we get. I would say recent in vampire terms and recent in human terms is, is different. Yeah, but yeah. probably recent in vampire terms, like maybe a couple decades. Maybe mm-hmm. 20 years. Which would fit with years. the Jim Morrison poster, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we meant mm-hmm. to think that that was their era. The, mm-hmm. But then they've kept up to date with fashion because they're well, definitely 80s, uh, that, 80s fashion. That's they? the really interesting thing because the, the, the thing it really reminded me of is a film from 79 called The Warriors, which is about gangs in, I think, New York sort of fighting and the the warriors the gang we follow trying to get across new york through all these other gangs territory and stylistically there's a lot of that in the vampires and the gangs who hang out in santa carla santa clara mm-hmm. um so so it almost kind of fits a little bit with like they were in that gang culture 10 15 years before and haven't really mm-hmm. changed out of it they've just got the colors of the 80s oh interesting i like that mm. mm-hmm. speaking of the cave mm-hmm. The maggot scene is obviously another very, yeah. very famous, famous one. Yep. Um, so I have a question. Mm-hmm. Go on then. Did they actually feed him maggots or were they just making him see things? I think they were making him see things. That was my interpretation of it mm-hmm. is they were just messing with his head. Okay. That they could create hallucinations. Because mm. I think obviously they do that later, don't they? With the motorbikes whirling around the house and the lights and the mm-hmm. engines. That's how I interpret that is that they can... Yeah, they can put sights and sounds into your head. And it's really interesting that we see the maggots and the worms because that means we're in his point of view. If we were in their point of view, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't see it. So, Mm, Yeah. Yeah, Because one way or another, they're making him see things because he sees them as both, doesn't he? He sees Mm -hmm. the rice on the floor afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I do wish, looking back, I've been watching far too much Schitt's Creek. I was just waiting for Star to step out and go, Ew, David, <laughs> when they were doing that bit. <laughs> but yes, it, I mean, it was gross, but it was perfect. The, those kinds of scenes are some of the ones that stick in my head because, like I said, about the time I watched it, it's a film, you know, you would take the videotape to your friends when you were having a sleepover mm-hmm. and you would watch it for the third or fourth time altogether and you'd all jump at the same bits Eww. and go, ew, at the same bits and <laughs> end up sort of, you know, hugging each other and crying, laughing, hysterically screaming at, you know, the bits later on in the film, which make you jump and make you just, you know, that, that sort of laughing and, oh, that's so gross mm. sort of side of it. Um, so, yeah, all of those bits did bring back some, some good moments. Nice. And, and I do distinctly remember certainly one of my friends in the middle of the film going, why are you making us watch this again? <laughs> <laughs> that may well be at the, um, the bonfire, the surf Nazis bonfire, I think, when he bites the guy's mm. head. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. I was like, why did he bite his head instead of his mm. neck? That was weird. Yeah, it was pretty Mass weird. Not the most effective way of drinking blood. <laughs> no. Not that it looked like blood either, to be fair. Oh, yeah, no, that was a bottle of red water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and talking of stuff that would make you shrink, shriek then, the bit where the Frog Brothers are trying to kill the vampire and, you know, not really succeeding... And then the dog runs in and is the one who kills him. And I love that because I I feel like the dog had kind of played his purpose in protecting Sam earlier. But actually Mm -hmm. the dog still needed to be there to do stuff. And and it made sense then rescuing the dog because it was almost one of those things, you know, we we have the dog there so it puts them in danger. But we were talking about it being a good family and the dog is part of this family. And they protect Mm -hmm. him and he protects them. And it's great. Mm -hmm. And the dog gets a vampire kill. Love it. Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful dog, wasn't mm. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And him lying on the bathroom floor while Sam's singing in the bath <laughs> as well. Bless him. It's very cute. I love that. Yeah, that very was an interesting cute. scene it, to, to really kind of drive home how young Sam is. Mm-hmm. Because most teenage boys aren't going to take a bubble bath. No, and I did. I I think I I wasn't sure if we were meant to think that was a sign of his. Um, his youth or whether that was a sign of him being to fit in with his fashion and his hair mm. and his mm. you know i like to spoil myself because he, is he wearing an eye mask at one point as well possibly possibly yeah 
no, just, you know, that he wears a dressing gown mm-hmm. and he has an eye mask. Mm-hmm. He always has these quite fancy pyjamas and all of that kind of thing. It almost sort of felt a bit more like that. Well, of course I'll have a bubble bath. Spoil myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I like it. I don't know. Yeah. But yes, I mean, he's very, you know, he, yes, he comes across as this young boy enjoying mm-hmm. the whole making silly hairstyles yeah. with his shampoo yeah. and his hair and singing in that funny voice. Yeah, really reminiscent yeah, it, it of It definitely um, does emphasize that, that young innocence. Really reminiscent of Ferris Bueller. Which a couple of years ago, before this, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, Kate, you love this film. I think it's probably fair to say. I do, I do. (laughs) What have we not covered? What what else is in here that you think is just the best? I have to say the opening of the film. Mm. Watching it again, I think is really, really well done. I think it sets, well, I was going to say it sets the tone. I think one of the issues with the tone of this film is it actually changes as the film goes on, I think when we talked before about the campiness of it, mm. that ramps up quite significantly mm, yeah. in the second half. But I think certainly the first half or so of the film, that initial swooping shot across the water towards the boardwalk mm. with the, the drums of the music starting and that organ coming in and you then get that very efficient little scene introducing us to the vampires and then it kicks in to that helicopter shot of, of the Emerson family arriving yeah, at Santa yeah. Carla. And, you know, it's, it's not subtle at all. And particularly that moment where they're passing the town sign and just as the mum's saying, you're going to love living here. <laughs> and we see the back of the sign, murder capital of the world, and the first few notes of people are strange yeah. kicking. Mm-hmm. It's so neat. As I say, it's not subtle, but it's it's just neatly done. And that tiny little scene in the car actually sets up that family beautifully as well, I mm. think, of the way they're chatting and laughing about the music mm-hmm. on the radio and come on, move on, move on, um, sets up the warmth of that family. Mm. So yeah. that, yeah, that, that whole sort of opening sequence, I think, is a really neat setup yeah. to the film. And yeah, that brought back memories of getting ready to watch it. <laughs> I think, you know, the sets and the costumes and that sort of thing are really well done. I think there's a lot of attention to detail. I think obviously that presumably has a lot to do with Joel Schumacher. I think that was his his career prior to becoming a director, okay. wasn't it? He was a, he was a costume designer right. and a set designer and he ha- really had the background in that. And um, we mentioned the poster of Rob Lowe. You've got Molly Ringwald on mm. the wall. You've got a big giant swatch hanging on Sam's wall, which would have been exactly what a kid of that mm. age would have mm-hmm. had in the, that sort of teenage bedroom. Um, and again, not subtle, but the vampire's cave, the way that was set up is that, um, you know, the falling through the cracks of this grand hotel um, with all the candelabras that have fallen and, and all of that kind of thing. I just think each each set brought a lot to what was going on in each particular scene. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right with things like the costumes and stuff. The fact that we've had such a conversation about it, like it stands out. There are other films mm-hmm. where it's just it just costume it fades into the background, but this is a good looking film. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, the soundtrack we mentioned. Um, mind you, we're talking about "Cry Little Sister" as a song, but mm-hmm. just it's just a really good soundtrack. That might be the nostalgia factor at play again for me, but there's yeah. a lot of good songs on the soundtrack. And I, I'm sure I read somewhere that um, again, Joel Schumacher did a bit of wheeling and dealing to try and get some of those artists on board. Okay rather than spend the film's budget on having them, that he then went on and directed some videos. I think In Excess being one of them. Yes. He directed some of their videos almost in exchange for mm-hmm. can we have you on can we have you on the soundtrack? That might not be a true story, but I know, that I've is read what that I've too. read. And I also read that it was the the bands who were going to be on the soundtrack that really pushed Kiefer Sutherland to want to be a part of the movie as well. Oh really? Nice, I hadn't nice. heard that. Yeah. So it, Joel Schumacher did good. <laughs> You did. Yeah. You did. And the ending. Did you like the ending of the film? I did. I really did. I was confused at first. I was like, how did the grandpa know? Like, why did he come in with all of these stakes? Like, how did he know to do this? And then you just get that final line. Yeah. And it's just perfection. It was well, good. Were we supposed to have a moment of thinking, oh, my God, grandpa's a vampire as well? I had that thought, honestly, in that moment where even though he had killed them, when he was yeah. going over to the refrigerator and, and they were all like, like, I think it was Lucy was like, doing? dad, dad, what are you doing? What are you? And he wasn't responding. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, he's going to turn around and have fangs. Like, but because the root vampire? beer was mentioned. With the root beer being mentioned early in the film, I, I, I remember, again, watching it with friends and us all being like, oh, no, oh, no, not grandpa, not grandpa, <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Thinking, is he going to pull out a bottle of blood? 
Right. And yeah. that Max was a rival of his or something. I'm really glad they didn't do mm-hmm. that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, but yeah. It, yeah, it was better. The, the final line ended up working out so much better. Um, but I think it was definitely a bit of misdirection. I think they wanted us to think that, mm-hmm. that he was going to be a vampire, yeah. Um, yeah. which sets up the line even better, I think. Mm. Yeah. So it was good. Good stuff. Yeah. Him putting the fence posts in was interesting. The upside down fence posts <laughs> when, they, when they're all going off in the car. Because I don't think I noticed that the first oh, time when I he had these they huge, he's there, you know, all you just sort of see, yeah, he's out there mending a mending a big fence, popping some stakes in the ground, yeah, and it's only afterwards you think, of course, yeah, he put them in. Not that that works for driving into them and driving them through the house, <laughs> but well, not. It looks cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's fine, yeah. But Chekhov's fence post or Chekhov's taxidermy workshop, there's a few of those in this film, isn't there? Of there, mm-hmm. we'll make sure we mention the bath early on. We'll make sure we mention the see the. Mm-hmm see all the antlers and the horns and all of that speaking of the antlers Mm. though um i i caught this watching it and i was confused because wood kills vampires not antlers right and he david was staked by antlers not wood um and i was reading and and nothing came of that but i was reading that joel schumacher had wanted to do an actual sequel like a direct sequel to this called the lost girls since most of the vampires were dead it would have to feature different ones, but David was going to be revealed to still be alive um, because he wasn't staked by wood. And apparently there is a comic series that takes place before one of the video sequels um, that does reveal that David was alive and he turned one of the vampires who's big in one of the sequels. I was reading this. Um, But I, I hate that you have to get all of that information extra textually because the movie makes you think he's dead and antlers killed him. Well, okay, but he's got antlers to his heart, so that might at least knock him out for a bit, and then he becomes human because <laughs> his master vampire is killed. He's definitely dead at that point. Hmm. Okay. Why did they have his face turn back from vamp face to his human face? Because he's pretty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is presumably the same reason why Star never turned vampire mm. during right. it. Laddie yeah, did. did. We saw Laddie yeah. with his little vampire face. So, and and obviously Michael does, even though he's a half vampire. Um, but yeah, Star's far too pretty, isn't she, Star to do that to a lov- yeah. lovely face? <laughs> but yeah, I just thought again, it wasn't subtle, but that that thing of Michael gazing at David as he died or oh. or went unconscious for a bit, if you want that interpretation, <laughs> and his face gradually changing back and that bright white light on him again, <laughs> which came from nowhere. Right. He just walks around with a portable spotlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That like hovers in the air in front yeah. of him. Yeah. yeah. I might start doing that. Selfish <laughs> <laughs> stick get with him. Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I felt back to the Buffy references. I think Mandy, you're going to hate me for saying this. Um, but I do think there's an echo of the, the scene in Becoming of us watching Michael, who's just killed David. Mm hmm just that moment of standing gazing at him um okay obviously it's not a direct if, comparison if you want to read it i think it's there i think i think the film is absolutely setting some of that up whether it knows it is or not um i'm not sure but i i don't know that the movie knew it but it, it's definitely there mm. all right well is there anything else that we need to discuss about the lost boys well i was going to ask about sequels but i think we've we've sort of heard your no. feeling on sequels on this <laughs> I haven't seen any of the sequels deliberately. Yeah, haven't ever wanted to. I'm pretty yeah. sure one of them has a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> oh, so amazing! No, amazing. We're not going to. We do have that. to. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> uh, Kate, can I ask you for recommendations here? Then, are there any other films that you love that you think should be on the list? If Mandy's seen, not seen them, yeah. So when I was thinking about this, I I didn't want to just. I couldn't think of any vampire films to recommend. And to be honest, I thought you'd both have had your full of vampire films over these few weeks. Um, but I was hoping to try and think of something that at least vaguely related to what we'd been talking about. So, yeah, one of the ones I was going to ask whether you'd seen is actually really recent. And it's Sing Street. I don't know if either of you have seen. I think it's from 2016. Um, film set in oh. Dublin. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. it's The reason that one sprung to mind is it's about 
a young lad at school and he, he starts up a band. But there's a scene in it where they dress up for the first video they shoot of themselves in the back streets. And right through the film, there's these various phases they go through in terms of how they dress. And it's directly related to who they've been watching on telly on top of the pops the night before, which nice. music videos they've been watching. And it just had so many echoes of what I was saying before about you watch things as a teenager mm-hmm. and you just think, oh yeah, I could definitely be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lovely film. I really would recommend it. Um, okay. The other one I came across, and it's more a note to self because it's a film I haven't seen for years and years, but I'd really like to go back to actually. When I was looking on IMDb at other films that Joel Schumacher had done and various other people, I realised that um, the film The Dead Zone, which is based on a Stephen King novel, mm-hmm. and I think it's mm. from about 1983, shares a screenwriter with the Lost Boys, Jeffrey Bourne. Okay. Okay. And, yeah, so it's not related in any way other than it shares a screenwriter, but The Dead Zone is um, a Christopher Walken film based Ooh. on a Stephen King novel. I'm into it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a horror film, I think. A lot of realised I'm not sure what a horror film is because I'll always tell people I don't like horror films, but I love The Lost Boys and people keep mentioning mm-hmm. that's a horror film. So, um, But, yeah, I would say... Dead Zone is a psychological horror. Um, okay. Shares a screenwriter. I would recommend that one. But I'm, I'm going to have a hunt for that one because it's such a long time since I've seen it. I hadn't heard of either, but they both sound interesting. And I think I think they both have a spot on the list, though it may be a while before we get to Yeah. But yep. I think I'd be interested in both of them. De- Dead Zone has also got Tom Skerritt and Martin Sheen in it. Yep. Okay, yeah, we're yeah, we're here that. for that. Yeah. yeah, we are absolutely <laughs> here for that. It's about a guy who develops um, psychic powers following a traffic accident, I think he's in. And if, huh. he, if he touches your hand, he can see your future. Nice. Oh, it's David That's Cronenberg. Nice. Oh, Matthew's okay. really intrigued Okay, now. yeah, we're not done. So, Matthew, have you not seen that No, one? I know of it. I think I know of it. There's yeah. a TV show version. I think yes, that is yes. what I know uh-huh. of. Yes, yes, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's why it sounds like the name sounds familiar. Mm. Maybe I've heard of the TV show. With um, Anthony mm. Michael Hall. Mm. Okay. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send an email to podcast at eloquentgushing.com. If you want to leave us a voice message so we can hear your lovely, lovely mm-hmm. voices, you can do that at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing, or just record yourself and send us an audio file. That'd be awesome, too. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been <laughs> lovely talking about this film. Thank you for waiting so long to, to come and talk to us. So th- this has been That's really fun. fun. Uh, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Um, so I'm at Katie Sheru on Twitter, which if you read my bio on Twitter, you'll see why I'm called Katie Sheru. But I'm, yeah, on Twitter a fair bit. So catch me on there. Lots of good pictures of dogs. That's the big pictures thing. Pictures of dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of pictures of dogs. <laughs> pictures of dogs is absolutely what we need on twitter right now so i support mm-hmm. that very much yeah. <laughs> we are completely funded by our lovely listeners through patreon anything you can give even one dollar a month it gives access to exclusive content it gives you stickers and postcards and merch and other things uh discounts off our merch store you can find more information if you go to patreon.com slash eloquent gushing and we'll be back next week with another episode where we are going to do a fright night double feature Not Fright Night 1 and 2, but Fright Night from 1985 and from 2011. So until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And when you're strange, faces come out of the rain. 